Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Hey everyone, this is Cody from Blood Origins. On today's episode, Robbie allows me to finally do a podcast on my own. My guest today is Joe Schwinky. Joe is a Michigan Upland hunter who has started a Facebook page called the Michigan Upland Experience to share and inform and let the world know about his joys of upland hunting, where they come from, and his quest for knowledge to become not only a better hunter, but a more understanding hunter. Joe uh, calls himself average, and I think if you... uh, finish this episode out, you'll agree that he uh, is not average at all. All right, folks, welcome to uh, the Blood Origins podcast. This is Cody, uh, Robbie's uh, indentured servant at Blood Origins, um, and he's finally decided to let me do uh, the Blood Origins podcast, the one-on-one individual interviews on my own. Um not not exclusively. I just get to do some, right? For those of you that know Dr. Kroger, um, he has trouble releasing things sometimes. But I'm uh, I'm pretty excited. 
We had a uh, – we've got Joe. Joe Is it Joe Schwinky? Am I saying it right? Yeah. Actually, yes, Schwinky. Schwinky, right? I, I, mm-hmm. uh, I grew up around some folks with some similar names. Um, and, Joe, you reached out to us. Do you remember what it was? I should have done my research. What did you send us a, a message? And I, I don't remember what the, what the message was correlating to on Facebook. It had to do with uh, one of your previous podcasts. I've been listening for a while as a way to get through my workday. And I think it might have been the one with uh, Michael Sabbath. Yeah, uh, that's right. It was, absolutely. Yeah. Michael's, Michael is a character. I'm telling you I, now, that guy's got a story. <laughs> I enjoyed absolutely every minute of that. And then, just as a sidebar, somebody yesterday asked me what kind of advice I might give somebody. And it had to do with a conservation topic. And Michael came up as, if you're going to do something conservation-wise, learning the facts is easy. Learning how to persuade somebody is hard. And oh, yeah. Michael's podcast Michael's podcast where he goes through and he, he illustrates a few of Aristotle's rhetorics was one of those things that caught my attention right away. If you're going to do something in this venue, it's not the facts. It's going to be how you persuade. And really, you couldn't have made it more true, Mark, than that one. Um, and then I added in a little bit of Sun Tzu's Art of War, If you're going to study and get into that thing where you are in these situations to convince people, being aware of the situation around you, which is what Sun Tzu teaches quite much, is know yourself and know your opponent. goes right into Aristotle with know your audience and how to connect. Well, if you have those things put together and you know how to demonstrate those things, especially on the fly, you'll be much better than just somebody who knows their facts and knows their biology and has their degree or their experience. If you can connect and persuade, you're going to be 10 times more effective than just a good biologist. No, absolutely. And quite honestly, I don't want to put all hunters in a bucket, um, but for a multitude of reasons, hunters are tend, hunters tend (laughs) to be (laughs) poor at that. Um, and it's not an intelligence quotient thing. It's a, it, to me, it, the biggest part of it is kind of that loner or that, uh, you know, I just don't want to deal with this. There's other things. I don't want to sit down with this person that disagrees with me. I'm going to go do something else, right? I think that's the biggest yeah. um, part of it. There's some hunters that don't know what to say. There's some hunters that don't think it's worth it. There's all different reasons. But as a group, we we tend to kind of, kind of suck at it um and mm-hmm. and yes. uh michael you know michael's michael sabbath his background is incredible very successful lawyer um who quite honestly i think that uh he also will tell you like michael came to my house one time and, and we were sitting on the back porch having a drink and he's like i don't i don't really know that much about hunting i've only i've only been hunting a few times then like an hour and a half later, we've discussed easily 15 countries that he's hunted in, right? Like, like he, he downplays the heck out of, out of the hunting side of it. Um, you know, he, he's hunted with the Beretta family, which, yeah. you know, some of us think we know that Berettas are shotguns. What we don't know is the centuries of history behind the shotgun making in that family. 
Um, but anyway, he he brings that that uh, lawyer that that his lawyer background, his attorney background is is the incredible part of what he talks about in that persuasion side of it. So yeah, anyway, you contacted us kind of with, I mean, it, is it fair to say with some kudos about that episode? Um, yeah. I always tend to, I, I'll, I'll admit this publicly that somewhat suspiciously, I click through to people's profile when I'm answering because we get a fair amount of people who are, uh, we get a fair amount of uh, espionage. We get a fair amount of people setting us up who don't really agree with us. They just want to engage so they can start saying horrible things to us, right? Um, I expect you have a target on your back. You put yeah, we get, a, we get a, yeah. You went especially, to the center of the battlefield. Right, right. Especially when you start, when you put, uh, you know, in the U.S., it's wolves, right? It's going to be mm-hmm. grizzly bears here fairly soon. Um, but then we just thought, you know, why not go full bore and, and really deal with the Africa stuff as well and start putting that that uh, charismatic megafauna from Africa and talking about hunting those things as well. It's it's always uh, it's a it's a couple day psych up process and planning situation to make sure we both have the time to deal with if an elephant picture goes up on our social media. Right. It's It's going to be a. We're going to be busy for the next couple of days, but I clicked through to your profile um, and was drawn immediately to what does it say? I think it says you're the founder or administrator at the Michigan Upland Experience. Is that the correct title? Um, well, it's it's a tongue-in-cheek title, really. I think it was a, a content provider or something like that. It's a something. Something that you're in, you're involved you're involved with the Michigan yes. Upland experience. And I clicked through that. Um, I'll be honest again that I spent about thirty seconds looking at it and thought I want to talk to this guy more. Um, well, good. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I want to know more about Joe, um, and we'll start there. Um, mm-hmm. I will tell you that the differentiator that made me say, "Hey, will you come on the podcast?" was I also want to know about the Michigan Upland experience, what that is, the driving factors behind it. But let's uh, let's talk about Joe first. Like, All give right. me a you know you know the give me the elevator pitch on who Joe Schwinky is. Joe Schwinky's a average guy. I'm an average okay, yeah. Michigan guy. Um, here's here's why. At 15, I went hunting with my dad for, it wasn't the first time. I'd shot some rabbits previously. I had a 22 when I was even younger than that. It was part of my birthday gift one year. And at 16, I finally shot a deer. I shot it with a bow. I come from a family of meat hunters. We shoot deer when it's economical. Um, we don't do this and spend more money than the deer is worth on a deer. Um, and we still do that. In fact, I have 20 acres sitting back here behind me that is there for the purpose of deer. It's there for the purpose of ducks, which is a passion of mine as well. But at 16, I shot one with a bow, proceeded to shoot four more, I think, that year, or three more with a rifle. Um, deer were very plentiful in Michigan at the time, still are. Uh, where we were hunting, it was. 20 now... 27 years later, I'm 42. 
I've shot a lot of deer. They're, they're food. They're part of our lifestyle. Um, we had beef tonight for dinner, and it's odd to see beef. It's odd to taste beef. I'm used to goose. I'm used to duck. I'm used to, now more lately, grouse and woodcock. Um, and deer has been the family staple. Uh, so in a way, I am a typical Michigan hunter. I don't have anything special on my resume. I've got a couple of modest eight points here in the study. Um, nothing spectacular or scorable, but a respectable deer. Mainly shot because those are food. Um, and the economics of it works out that way. Behind you, I can I know you can see me. No one else can. A series of ducks and a grouse on the wall there behind me. Those are... You can call them trophies. I value every one of those birds more than I value a deer. Just the way I am. But at the same time, I can't say there's anything different about me than 100,000 other Michigan hunters. We take what's in front of us, whether it's a squirrel or a rabbit. We have family traditions that go into hunting, go back generations into hunting. Um, my grandpa was more farmer than hunter. My grandpa Schwenke enjoyed sitting in the woods, enjoyed the time there, but wasn't maybe as passionate as my dad. I learned from my dad. Again, that's one of those things that's just typical of us. Um, I can't claim anything special. I learned, I learned from a dog training group how to train my first dog, and he's not a miserable wreck, uh, but we're not perfect by any means either. And he was enough to shoot birds over last Sunday morning. And he retrieves fantastically. I have some ribbons on the wall that say he's a good retriever. Um, getting into the Upland experience, too, we're, we're just average guys. What we've done, however, is we've taken our passion. And maybe what we've done is we've added knowledge to our passion. And so what you have in me is the average Michigan hunter who has decided that I need to rise above the average level of intellect is a poor, really poor word for it. But to raise my level of knowledge in a way that when, as I read my audience, like Aristotle would have me do, or Sun Tzu would have me reflect on myself to know my strengths and weaknesses. Okay, I need to know more. My weakness is I don't know enough. My weakness is also how do I apply it in a way where I don't turn my audience off. I go back into Aristotle's rhetoric. If I'm not turning off my audience, what can I do to persuade them or turn them neutral? It's kind of the understanding because whether it's the Facebook page, Michigan Upland Experience, or in my personal Facebook page, or, or in, you know anywhere in a grocery store, a conversation goes, how do I connect? More importantly, the it keeps going back to I'm, I'm not any more than average other than I have this understanding of I'm a representative of my sport. And that's been something I learned a long time ago. Um, I think you, I think one thing I want to interject with is anybody that's got the confidence to wear that hat is slightly above average. I mean, it, that's a bad, that's a badass hat. I don't know the name of the hat. I would call it like a, 
like to me, it makes me think of the lead character on Peaky Blinders. I don't know if that's the exact kind of hat he wears, but the, the hat's badass. It it's not your average. <laughs> it's not your average guy hat. And I've, I think yeah. that quest for knowledge that you're talking about is. So we, we talk to a lot of people about the motivations behind the reasons they go out in the woods and and they go out in the woods to and kill animals, right? I mean, that's that's what we do. It's what hunters do. Yeah. Um, and I think that that growth process, um, all the way from. I really doubt that, and I'll, if you tell me I'm wrong, I'll believe you 100%, but I doubt that Sun Tzu and Aristotle and a quest for knowledge had anything to do with that first deer when you were 16, right? Um, right. I ate like it, a it, horse it, when I was 16. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it was exactly. food. And it, it's, I think the cool that cool transformation, not only of the individual, but from the generation, right? Like I heard Jim Shockey one time, um, talked about how his dad was a hunter, but when deer season opened, his dad's goal was to get a deer first thing the first morning because he very much had other things to do, but he wanted the deer meat, right? And Jim's goal is to shoot a deer right at the end of light on the last day because he wants to experience the hunt. Now, some of that has to do with hunting wasn't Jim's dad's job and it is Jim's job, right? I mean, there's a, but, but there's a yes. different motivation, a different, uh, a different level of the it, it, motivation. I, I, I try to come up with a fancier word, but I think that's the best word. There's a different set of motivations. Mm -hmm. Just like when you talked about your, your grandfather, you know, a whole lot of farmers hunt, but, they don't sit around and talk about it on podcasts, right? And it's not because they're not intellectual. It's not because they're not brilliant people. It's probably pretty much just because they got other shit to do, right? I mean, it's it's that it's that simple. We live in this luxury of a first world where we can jump on podcasts with a tasty beverage and talk to some guy that could be a character from Peaky Blinders with that hat about why and motivations and thoughts and knowledge, right? Um, and that, that's, that's why I love blood origins. I mean, it's because I love the, the stories and the discussions and the, and I've, that's, that's, I mean, I no doubt can it, there was times when I was 16 and 17, my dad's sitting right below me, but he's too old to get mad now. And I would skip school and go hunting. And I I mean, I, at 16, I probably wanted to, I probably wanted I was motivated by wanting to brag to my friends. I was motivated by a whole different set of things. I enjoyed it, but it was a different set of motivations and enjoyment where, you know, it, that, that transformation of, of uh, the transformation of motivations. I may have just coined a, a phrase right there is uh, one of my favorite parts of discussing things with hunters. <laughs> my, your dad would be mad maybe if you skipped school. My dad broke me out for a whole week, told the teachers I was going hunting. Right, right. Yeah, we yeah. didn't uh, We didn't ever go for a whole week. We definitely – ducks were a big part of my growing up, and duck hunting is a is – a, it's a – you know, it can – just like any other form of hunting, it can really be a religion. And uh, and uh, it was a it was a big part of my growing up and uh, and still still love it to this day. Let's uh, 
what do you what how, how what do you do for a job? Just because I feel like that's a thing I pers- I should ask. I uh, I work on fire alarm systems. I'm here in Southwest Grand uh, Southwest Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids area, and I work in medical facilities on their fire alarms. I work for a company that contracts out out what we do. Um, it does leave me time during the day to think. I was an electrician before that, and there's very few trade jobs that are going to absorb all your mental energy that really often at all. It's, it's, right. you follow the lines on the drawing, you do the task the way it works best and the most efficiently. And along the way, I probably get to think on my own for six hours a day. I don't need my full mental capability to take one red wire that has two conductors and drag it from point A to point B. Right. Gives you, gives <laughs> you know, time it, to listen to the Blood Origins podcast at work, right? Absolutely. Actually, I was listening to a few more today. Um, Excellent. Along the way, though, it allows me to think of an article I want to write for our our local advocacy group, the MUCC, and for their magazine. Um I can write about things or I can at least in my head get the phrasing I want or get the topic I want about taking my boys hunting. And I can then put that into a 700 word plus with a couple of pictures, send it in, get paid a hundred bucks or more. And along the way, I can kind of spread what I do out to a mass of people um, here in my own state. That's the beauty of, what I do for a living is yeah, at a certain point and part of part of the lunch break one day at work was my coworker getting tired of me talking about upland hunting, tired of right. me talking about recipes and tired of me talking about my writing. He was a grant writer and doing other nonprofit work on the side. And he was tired of me going, well, what would I do or how would I phrase this or other things like that? And he finally clicks onto my tablet what would you call this, Joe? I would call it the Michigan Upland experience. Why? Because the experience part matters as much as the kill matters. The experience of you and I maybe going out over a dog and wandering through the woods 10 yards apart or less, waiting for the dog to go on point, enjoying conversation, enjoying um, a water break or a lunch break, or enjoying the look of a bird before it goes in your vest and kind of gets squished and kind of doesn't look as pretty anymore, right? You get that bird back, you look at the tail fan, you look at the the rough on a rough grouse along their neck, and you can admire it right there in the woods, and all that's more experience than me finding sustenance. A grouse and a woodcock and other things aren't really going to feed me that well. It's going to be magnificent eating, but it's not going to be long-lasting calories. And so next thing you know, he hands me back my tablet. Well, type in a password, type in this, type in that. And that's how the page came to be. Um, on a whim, just a guy wanted to wanted to help me out in a way I didn't realize I even needed helping. Um, that's, I think, the beauty of it right there is that I stumbled into it, and then I had this thing where I have a platform. But... Going back I want to, to dive into second. that more. I want Later, to dive into right? that more, but first, I want to. How old are your boys? I have two 12 year old boys. I have twins. 
Oh, all right. That's always got to be interesting as a parent. Is there ever a time as a parent, like if one of them walks into the room, do you just, did you always just instantly know which one it was? I've always wondered that about twin parents. In this case, it's really easy. They're fraternal. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, they look a little different. Some folks have gotten them confused. I mean, they're still brothers, but right. They're definitely themselves, and I've and we've noticed too. Their personalities are definitely distinct, more than their own features. Um, they're each right. their own I person by a long shot. So, it we still get them wrong. Are they, thing. are they? Are uh, they? Are they digging it? Is hunting their thing? I mean, that's a. It's a. It's a. Uh, you know. What's what's their scope on on what dad does and the Michigan Upland experience part of it and the thought processes that you put into hunting? They we allow them to pick what they like. And it's okay if you don't like something as much as something else. Um I we don't do a lot of sports, right? We we don't have them four days a week going to practice and Saturday games. Because Saturdays in October are hunt. What you hunt might change, but we're not playing football. So to right. get a coaching experience in here, that's what we have hunting for. Well, your mom might want to go goose hunting. You want to get up early, go sit there on the edge of a marsh or on the in a field, and you can be with your mom. I'm going to be two hours north of here or an hour and a half north of here, and I'm going to hunt woodcock. You have a choice. You can pick the one you like the most. And sometimes the one boy, Caleb, would rather come with me. He gets up a little later. We have bacon and eggs. We're in the woods by nine, and we have pointing dogs, his setter, and my short hair. And we'll look for birds with friends of mine up there. Go hunting with mom. Sure, it's early, but you don't have to walk around. And you can pick the one you want. Um, The other thing is... And here's something I can ruffle some feathers with. Let's get right into that. We don't quit when you want to quit. This replaces sports. This replaces your coach saying, no, it's the third quarter. You're not quitting. No, just just no. But if you got up at 3 a.m. to go to a mallard spot, and now after the wood ducks are done flying, you're bored, and you want to quit, and it's 8.30 in the morning, well, well, no, mallards fly at 9.30, 10. You you don't quit right now. You don't have to be mentally alert and awake and prepared. You can sit down, have a snack. Look at Tweety Birds. If you want to hide back in the bushes and do something else and read a book, we brought you a book. But now that you're, like 12, and you're 12 and you have a gun, you unload your gun. You set your gun right. here. You can do your own thing, but you'll miss the opportunity if that mallard shows up at 10 and you're back there reading and it instantly snaps that kid back and goes, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss that 10 o'clock mallard by sitting back there reading. No, I'm, I'm good. I'll sit here. Yeah. Okay. It takes the Excellent. place of say track and field, but it, we still need those things. We still value those things. And so that's what we've given them now with the, the property behind the house. My dad built a deer blind that's comfortable, dry, warm. Hey, would they like to try deer hunting? Well, would we'll ask them, would you like to go hunting with Grampy? Yeah, I think in the morning I would like to. Perfect. We'll arrange it. 
Grampy's going to hunt till 10, you know, and it goes right into that same situation. And they've, they've embraced it um, as well as one day. And I don't know if this helps or hurts. I was at a hunting retriever club test, our Great Lakes chapter here, and it had been hot. We'd worked all day and I had a couple of cocktails and they were eight at the time. And there were three or four litters probably around that still had pups available. And so they kept getting my boys off to the side going, you need a puppy. You need right, a puppy. Right. You need a puppy. So they come to dad. Dad, never judge. dad we, we, we want puppies. Not knowing any better. I said, yes. And they said, like, right now? I'm like, no, you're, you're, you're eight. I was just enough in line where I said, you know, about 10 years old. You could get a puppy. And they said, like, share a puppy or get a puppy. And I said, well, I remember sharing everything when I was a kid. Sharing kind of sucks. You can each have a puppy. Well, I just essentially promised myself between three and $4,000. Right. <laughs> and, uh, right. Plus two puppies in the house. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they took me very seriously. The one did his research in a matter of six weeks, told me I want an orange and white English setter. And he never wavered. Okay. Just before 10 years old, we started figuring out where to find an orange and white setter that would handle and respond to a 10-year-old. We, right. we found a nice Ryman bread setter. And uh, and he's laying in there in the bed right now. And uh, an incredible dog. The other one kind of wishy-washed back and forth between lab and various spaniels and even for a little bit of Dratar and some others. And then finally he said, well, it'll be a spaniel. Okay, Springer or Cocker. Field, it'll have to be a field dog. We, we, we established that it had to have a job. It wasn't going to be a poodle. We found somebody across the state that was holding a hunt test where Cockers and Springers were going to be there. And we drove over there, spent the night, spent two days watching an AKC hunt test for Spaniels. In the end, he had more questions than he had answers. We went back again the next year to a training day. The breeder there does field trials, and he has Springers. A friend of ours from the UP, a mutual friend, has five Cocker Spaniels. All field bred does field trials as well. They came down, and they did a gigantic training weekend and so the other boy shadowed for two days these two field trial trainers asking questions writing questions down getting answers doing his own thing and in the end he said well i'm going to go with a springer because they should be able to carry a bigger bird mainly like a mallard or a goose or something like that and he thought well that's what our family does we do those things And I want my dog to be able to participate. And so he picked Springer. And so now we have a little black and white. She is actually in a crate because she's a little monster still. But we have a family full of dogs. (laughs) Um, The best way to deal with kids. That's a a very in-depth 9 or 10-year-old thought process on dog choosing, right? That's not, this one's really cute. It's, uh, that's, uh, great, great life lessons there. That's parenting though. I need young men. No, I, and that's absolutely, how you do it. I agree a hundred percent. 
So let's let's uh, kudos on that. I don't want to jump right off of it. I think uh, I think there's uh, a trillion good ways to raise a child, um, but the one thing that's mandatory is thinking about it as you move through the process. And uh, yes, and um, I, uh, kudos on that. I I would uh, I would wager that there's two two uh, fine young men coming out of the back end of this ordeal. We're, Let's, we're uh, proud of them, for sure. We're proud. Absolutely. I can tell that, and you should be. Um, the Michigan Upland experience, the thing that kind of made me go, uh, all right, I want to talk to this guy. No, nothing. I, I didn't know anything about you personally. It's not like you personally was boring <laughs> to me. I mean, good Lord, you own that hat. You're not a boring person. But – I the Michigan Upland experience. What's that? Boring is definitely not me. No, I don't. Uh, I don't get that impression at all. Um, the Michigan Upland experience. It's a Facebook page with seventeen hundred and fifty-ish followers. That uh, there's some thought put into the posts. I just summarized everything yeah. I know about the Michigan Upland experience. Tell me, you told me the story of how it was created, a guy that really was just pissed off that you wouldn't shut up at work about things. So he got you a Facebook page so you could post things there instead of gnawing his ear all the time really is what happened. Um, yes, but what, what's your uh, What's your motivation there and what's come out of it? The motivation has developed into how to be a positive influence over people that would either view Michigan hunting a certain way, primarily either negative or positive, really. But it's how can I cheerlead is a really good way to put it. How can I do my part? to promote Michigan and its hunting opportunities, primarily upland. How can I promote our heritage? How can I promote our birds? How can I help the birds really when it comes to promoting the birds? How can I help them? Um, Why? Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to act like Stephen Ranella here and just interrupt. Um, What, why primarily upland? That seems to be what I've developed as me into. Um, no, it's, a, it's a great answer, and that's the that's the. I mean, I think that's a. I, I I set you up for a question that was probably going to be a moderately self-based answer, right? Like mm-hmm. that's uh, the the story behind it. We're not really a big upland family outside of me. I'm, I'm the uplander in my family. My dad is deer and he runs hounds for rabbits. And how I came to this was I decided I wanted to go up north bird hunting. I rented a cabin at a resort that was known for good bird hunting in the area. Lots of state land, good timber management, opportunity to shoot birds. And along the way, then I said, well, I've rented a place with three bedrooms. If you want to come up, you can do whatever you want. We'll just eat dinner together, more or less. 
Dad came along, my brother came along with rabbit dogs, and they shot rabbits. That's what I grew up with, was beagles. And after a few years of this, where my my brother and my dad having rabbit dogs, me just bird hunting either without a dog or hoping the rabbit dogs kicked one up for me, that was the thing. And then dad's finally like, well, you should probably get a bird dog. You know, if I keep this up, yes, I should. And then I got one. And then I immediately had to go find a group to train with because I knew absolutely nothing about a bird dog. And I end up at NAVDA, where I meet some of the other guys from our page, the guys in bird camp that starts next week, other things like that. And that kind of starts it all. But along the way then, the that's how it, yeah, that, that's really just how it started. How I developed into that is, it's a year-long process of training, going into hunting season, going back into training again, starting to live that lifestyle. What are you going to spend your few vacation days on? Well, I planned a week-long bird camp. Well, that cuts into other things you're going to do, right? There's always an opportunity cost. I take the opportunity to hunt birds. I'm going to give something else up. Part of that along the way was some deer. I still deer hunt nowhere near like I used to, um, or really at all as fervently. And that's how I developed into what I have now, where I have four dogs in this house. My wife's Labrador is the duck dog, but he does quite well with Woodcock. And if I could put him on some grouse, I'm sure he'd be fine there too. But I turned into more of a bird hunter. I embraced the bird literature, like the stuff you see behind me there on the bookshelf, the George Bird Evans and the Burton Spillers and all the things that goes along with New England grouse hunting and the Great Lakes grouse hunting and the West Virginia uh, heritage of grouse and woodcock as well. And part of that helps with the hat. That's right. You know, the side-by-side -side shotguns, the, the, the nice thing about all that too is once you get into it in a way, it just it becomes part of you. And so then that's why the Upland experience was more Upland. That timed perfectly with where I was going personally. Um, sure, sure. It makes complete sense. Don't you think that Upland hunting, I got to figure out how to word it so that it's funny but not derogatory. I ran a guide service in Kansas for several years and, and pheasants and, and, and wild quail were a, were a big part of it. Um, if someone's an upland hunter, I think in a weird way, upland hunting correlates with like sheep hunting to me, not in the same level of intensity, but you're obviously not doing it for a motivation of killing a lot of stuff, right? Right? Because there's way, way easier ways to kill a lot of stuff, to, to put a lot of meat in the freezer, to have a lot of success, right? Like every upland hunter has turned his dogs out on a field that there just weren't any damn birds in, right? That it just, it just, it just was a, was a miserable failure in the sense of putting we meat in the freezer right there's like i think yes yes there is 
and there's a thing out there where there is not a more calorie negative pursuit than birds. Right. Right. Okay. Everything I stumbled around for 90 seconds trying to say, that's perfectly yes. summed if I, up. If I was going to fill a freezer, I would not bird hunt. I would take the days that I have unpaid vacation on. I would go right to work and I would buy a cow. Right. That's Absolutely. what I would do Absolutely. if I was feeding my family or it would be, it would be down here at the Aldi. I would buy on sale chicken and freeze it because you know, this is not, and part of it is economically, I can't see hunting going that direction where I filled the freezer economically in most situations. I do this because when I travel up north to camp, I'm a tourist and I dump money into that economy that needs me up there. I buy beer at the local store. I buy gas at the local gas station. I can't say I on purpose forget stuff off my menu, but it happens every year that somebody has to drive down to the dry goods store and buy something for our menu. We rent a cabin. We, if we, hell, one year one of the hunting partners lost two different bells off his dog. Where is he? He's down at Johnson Sporting Goods doing what? Buying the only bell they provide. Well, while you're in there, and I went in there with you, I'll take another box of number sixes. Yeah. My purpose isn't just feeding. Now, we eat it, and we love the cuisine that comes from it. It's not an issue of how many calories I can bring home. I can bring home a very unique cuisine, and I can bring home something where the next thing you know, I have it like tonight even. I started out with basically some sautéed onions and a little bit of ground-up poblano pepper, and next thing you know, there's some vermouth deglazing the steak pan and a little heavy cream, and I have a cream sauce to go with two grouse breasts, two woodcock breasts, and some beef steak that we had. I hunt because my kids like grouse. I love grouse food. The uniqueness of that menu tonight is a part of why I hunt. I can't say I do this because I'm going to bring home a freezer full of anything. I'm going to enjoy a very social time with my friends that I've learned to like from dog training club and from the gun club and from guys that I know from out of state that are coming up to enjoy a very unique opportunity we have in Michigan where they're going to bring up a puppy. And there's going to be a spot where we can put that dog on 40 contacts before lunch. And I can give that dog a year's worth of bird contacts from the state they're in in an afternoon. Those are the things that we have. That's what makes our hunting special. It's it's what I can do with two little half-ounce woodcock breasts. And hopefully you get your three right. woodcocks, so at least you have six then to play with. But the purpose right. of it really isn't feeding anymore. It's the feeding the economy up there. It's the feeding the system through my license fees. It's all the things that we do other than just stuff our face with cheap meat. That woodcock breast is going to be about 10 bucks an ounce when I'm done. <laughs> no, absolutely. Calorie calorie negative is not a phrase I was familiar with, but it is. I guarantee you I won't make it through uh, five more podcasts in my life without just saying calorie negative, very much like I invented yep. the phrase. Yep. But I uh, 
that's a, that's the way I feel about upland hunters. And it's a, it's an admiration. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative and I love upland hunting. Um, I was very much involved in it when I ran the outfitting service. Um, not a, you know, I think maybe I just like sitting in a duck blind more than the walking part of it. I love, I love the, the dog work is like, uh, there's, there's so much beauty. Just, no. Yeah. It's incredible. And I mean, I have had the joy of yes. being over some great dogs that were in our kennel as well as we had some, some clients with outfitting service. There's some really, really incredible upland hunting in, um, in Kansas still, one of the, I yes, think, the is. meccas of wild Bob White quail hunting, which is, um, you know, wild Bob White quail are hard to come by in in the world anymore. And Kansas still has those. Mm -hmm. um, but the dog work is infectious. It's 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 mesmerizing to see really good dogs work. Um, and I almost like watching the person handling the dog nearly as much as I like watching the dog. Um, I love all that stuff, but you know that someone loves their craft if they actually go out on a regular basis and upland hunt because it's not, you know, there's, there's nothing, you know, no one ever made the front page of a magazine for the biggest pheasant that they ever, you know, ever shot. That's not a thing that happens. It's not, it's not a trophy thing. Um, and it's also, it's just not a meat thing, whether it's no. success or bag limits, either way, you're putting a day's meal for your family in the bag. You're not stocking the freezer, right? It's just, it's not a thing that yeah. happens. Um, and so I've, that, that was part of the infatuation when I clicked through and saw them. I, I like talking to, uh, you know, just crazy bird hunters, right? That's what they are. They're, they're anyone that, that has the damn dogs and does all the dog work. They're a lot like, like, uh, you know, avid, even avid, uh, you know, it's the same group of people. It's the same kind of mindset as folks that are, you know, even avid coon hunters or lion hunters with dogs. It's, there's no, uh, there's no bragging rights. There's no meat. It's just, I love this craft. So yep. what is, so you started this or your coworker started this Facebook page. Um, what's come out of it? What's happened that you didn't expect or that you did expect, but what's come out of it? Has there been connections made? Has there been events that have happened? What's come out of the Michigan Upland Experience Facebook page? From, from its start where essentially I was wanting to practice some outdoor writing and I wasn't expecting even article length. I, I really enjoy say 300 words in a picture describing a certain, certain scene at a certain day in a certain cover. And I would just throw it up there and I haven't done it in quite a while actually now because we've developed beyond that. Um, Part of the reason for what we've become, um, I'm going to try to be coherent in the way I, I describe this, and cheerleading was the word I would always usually use, 
cheerleading the birds, cheerleading the tradition, cheerleading the practice of our upland hunting. Um, it's come into a few things. Honoring, um, like George Bird Evans up here behind me on the poster, being worthy of your game. How can we be worthy of the, the birds we, we pursue? Well, as true conservationists, there's four of us now on the page. We couldn't, I couldn't just do it with me. I needed more admins. I wanted more perspective. I'm a middle-aged guy with dogs and two boys. My hunting partner, Chris, same sort of situation, except he has two girls. Our friend Adam is a, a passionate pheasant and grouse guy from the other side of the state, different political spectrum and everything else, no kids, same passion. We brought him in, and now we have also a retired DNR guy from the UP, totally different region and different um, different way of thinking sometimes at all, but uh, uh, at heart a scientist, at heart somebody who's poured 40 years now into rough grouse conservation through the various nonprofits and the habitat organizations. The four of us have come together and we've said, what, what do we value as, and I'll go back to being average guys. We're just guys that hunt. We like to hunt, but we've taken our role more seriously. We each have found a way to advocate for our birds, for our habitats that we see disappearing or are at least being maintained well. And I, I, I want to shout out to our Michigan Forestry Department. We're turning into more and more of a place to go for rough grouse. Other states don't have that. Other states, they continue to lose ground. Our forestry department cuts up to 50,000 acres a year out of 4 million that they control. We're doing okay, right? I, I see a good future for the bird. We're doing our best to, part of it is educate a hunter. Part of it's to educate a deer hunter who sees their tree stand wiped out by a 30-acre clear cut. Oh my God, they wrecked my hunting. Give it two years. Let all that food grow back. Let that shelter grow in. Let that forageable material, food, by the ton, literal tons, grow back in. And move your stand to the next tree you can find. And then be quiet and sit there and watch the deer. Because without food and shelter, you don't have deer either. You know, that clear cut's hard to walk in. All the slashes on the ground. Well, part of what we do, slash is good. Let it rot back into the soil and enrich that soil. So that the next aspen whips that come back up through there are just that much stronger. If you're, if I've you're got, a bird, yeah, go ahead. I've got two questions for you. Yes. You got to be honest, all right? I mean, you got to, you got to, it, it may be hard, but you've got to be honest. Did you go searching for a blaze orange scully cap, a blaze orange peaky blinders hat, or did, or did you just stroll across one? Cause I've seen it on the page. I scrolled down the Michigan Upland experience and I know, I know you have one. Yeah, I know. I know. I've seen it. I've I seen the pictures. I didn't go looking for it. I, I, I'm, I don't know you well, Joe, but I'm, preparing to call you out i think you spent hours and hours on the internet looking for a blaze orange scully cap it wasn't me 
you wore that one around and someone found you one. My wife hunts as much as I do. (laughs) And for the the hardest person in the world to buy for is really not that hard when I like this style of British driving cap. And I like to bird hunt. And I'm required to wear orange. And this particular one has another gift on there. That is a deer antlered carved and covered GSP. That's from a guy in Michigan that carves Bob's antler art. So I'm a hard guy to buy for right up until the point where you realize that I think about this stuff all the time, right? And so she buys me the pin. She buys me the hat. She buys me some of these books behind me. The that's from my mother-in-law, the GSP statue that I got at an auction, right? This whole room is filled with things that it would be impossible to buy for some people because what would you buy for them? Shotgun shells, bird dog stuff. It's not that hard. It may be the exact opposite of what you're saying. You may be the easiest guy in the world to buy for because. Yes. Especially especially at the time when you didn't have a blaze orange hat like that. You were the easiest guy in the world. When she stumbled across that, she's like, I nailed this. I this is the I've I've nailed this. This is easy shopping. I please know that I think the hat is badass. Um it have just you seen the, the instant the instant that you led into this with I'm just the average Michigan hunter, just the average hunter, I thought, okay, that not with that hat, he's not. You're wrong. The second thing I want to throw at you is uh you said the word conservation multiple times. Um, I'm a firm believer that that upland hunters, I mean, you want to talk about calorie negative. They're also, uh, upland hunters spend just as much time, money, time and treasure, time, treasure, and, and effort um, in conservation as anyone else. I'm a firm believer in that. But what do you say to the person that said when you you mention whatever you're in a you're at a dinner party you know that you're somewhere and and you're talking about killing birds and com- and conservation simultaneously and someone calls you out on the oxymoron of what you're talking about what do you say cuz it is right i mean very obviously to the public Mm-hmm. You and I are on a podcast talking about killing animals yes. and conserving animals simultaneously. Yes. How do we deal with that? Well, generally, depending on the room, I don't always lead out with that I kill animals. Right. right. You don't have now, a badge. They'll, figure, they'll figure it out. It'll take five minutes to figure it out once we start talking. And I clearly have no idea what hockey is for. And, you know, whatever, wherever the conversation goes at a certain point, Joe, what do you do? And it's like, I'm, well, we're going to full send this one and see what happens. Well, well, Joe, how, why, why would you kill something like an American woodcock? It's a size of a tennis ball. You can honestly say though, most of the people that I know, Two months out of the year, a little bit less, 45-day season for woodcock, two months or so for grouse, yes, I do my best to kill a few, sometimes a few a day. 
the rest of the year, I do everything in my power to make sure that there isn't a coon, coyote, fisher, hawk, or anything else that's going to get to that bird. And the only way I can do that is that I provide such a home for them that it's such a pain in the butt to catch that bird that they go and they hunt rabbits and mice and anything else they can find. And that's what I do. And along the way, on the other hand, I provide this home for the grouse and I advocate for their home and their habitat and their food. Along the way, everything else that's food benefits. The, the rodents, the moles, the chipmunks, the red squirrels, they all go to those places. They all can hide there. They all can thrive there. And along the way, you can look at that guy across the table from the Audubon Society that thinks I'm is, I'm no different than Jeffrey Dahmer. Except, except that in the end, I just told him that his precious warblers have a place to go and hide and be safe and have their nesting the way they should and be fueled up for a migration every fall when they go to warmer climates because my efforts... Whether I see them or not, I don't care. I want them to be there. I'm after the birds. I'm after the grouse and the woodcock. And along the way, he's looking at the gold-winged warbler. Well, that's cool. There's also a cooper's hawk. There's a sharp-shinned hawk. Those other places. And when you turn that conversation into what do you like, well, why can't, why can't we, why can't it all be peaceful? Well, that Cooper's Hawk's going to eat. It's not going to be peaceful anywhere. That coon will raid nests. It's not peaceful. Fox will catch something to eat. Won't be peaceful. But I can make it such a pain in the butt to catch those birds that he goes after mice. And even an Audubon guy doesn't care about mice. Even then, I've provided such a home for all these things through conservation, that there's a surplus. So he catches a few. So that coon gets a few eggs. So that fox catches a couple of chicks from a grouse nest. So what? We've created more than that fox will catch and eat. We've created more of a surplus. This prey species, the beautiful thing about prey species, give them a home and they will out, they will fill their home. Whatever you give them for their habitat that they need, they'll fill every last bit of it with them. Whether it's a duck, a rabbit, a grouse, or anything else of the prey variety, frogs. You give them a bigger home, they'll fill every last corner of that home. And part of, part of the conservation part, and maybe this is where we're no longer average. The whole home matters. And that message right there will resonate across the anti-hunters that I listened to today on the NRC council meeting up here. The whole home matters to the Audubon Society, whether they want to admit that the hunters built that home for them or not. The anti-logging crowd will have to admit someday that the logging industry advocated for by Rough Grouse Society and guys like me built that home. It's going to be a hard admission. But that's what it is, right? You really think they'll admit it? Nope, not one bit. I, but I'll be right. I, 
I agree with you 100%. I think you're right. I think John Bear, who is an auctioneer out of Utah, who's probably, probably, John can probably say that he has been involved in raising as much money for conservation as anyone in the world. I've been at auctions where that guy has sold tags for four, five, six hundred thousand dollars that the money all goes to conservation. Um, he said one time that we have animals to hunt because we hunt. Um, yes. And it's to me like the simplest that there's all these other groups. I have yet, I'll put it that way. I have yet to come across a quote unquote animal advocacy group that's anti-hunting that has done one millionth of the actual groundwork to make there be more animals that hunters have. Um, and, you know, it to me, that's still the ultimate of the twisted conversations. It's that it's why I think a person like Michael Sabbath could really advance our causes is because not only I talked in the beginning about how a lot of us are loners that like to be out in the woods and we don't want to argue, argue with people. There's also a, a group of us that don't know how to make, that don't know how to walk intelligently into the discussion, right? Because of the conundrum of where this group of people that kill animals yet tout conservation, right? It's a, it on its surface. Yes. It's a big ass oxymoron. It really is on, on this, on the surface. Thank and I, that's Michael why Sabbath. I go ahead. Think Michael Sabbath going back to Aristotle and know your audience. I can engage any one of those people in the public sphere whether it's social media or in person or that dinner party as a hypothetical, I don't care if I ever convince that guy. If I'm a gentleman, I'm polite. I'm a decent human being. I present facts. I also, more importantly, like Michael would say, is make that connection, right? More than just one person is listening to me. And the beauty of social media is if I'm going to engage there, it's never the person in front of me I'm trying to convince. Those comments are read by a hundred other people. And those people read, they listen, they don't even respond. They just read. My argument is never to that person in front of them, because you could go back to Aristotle or the 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 intellectual places of Athens, and he's going to sit there and he's going to argue with a guy that will not agree with him. And intellectually, they will respectfully battle back and forth all afternoon. But there's 50 students who listened. Right. And 100%. I don't care about the guy in front of me as much as those 50 students. And that maybe is the beauty of if you have your right message, conservation gets through. Part of it is because that third party sees what's happening in front of them. They get a compare and contrast between somebody who maybe doesn't use the facts the way you do, doesn't use the same polite language you do, in the end seems less prepared than you do. And along the way, that matters quite a bit. Part of what we do on the page 
is kind of like that. We try to stay to things we know, things that we're prepared to talk about, and hopefully that works out. We'll see further on how that actually goes, though. But that comes back to knowing our limitations. Don't argue about what you don't know. Argue strongly when you know you're right. That's something to think about, too. Joe, I've got uh, one final thing, weirdly, that I want to close up on, all right? Yeah. I have never hunted woodcocks before. Okay. And I have abs like, I don't even under, I, are they just truly an upland bird? Like, give, walk me through, you park the truck, how do you go hunt woodcocks? Where I park the truck really matters. Um. <laughs> We can take a nice pleasure pleasure stroll through a lot of cover and never find one. Um, up here in Michigan, we shoot more woodcock than any other state in the Union. They fly through here in flights. They're a migratory bird, and so we really do load up on birds. They're looking for a spot that is stem-dense, young growth. Usually there's more moisture there and a certain pH because their their feeding habits are mostly worms, sometimes other invertebrates, but really we, we go to a spot where there should be earthworms close to the surface. So you're looking for water holes or edges of swampy areas. If it looks a little mucky, and a lot of the times we look for a certain variety of bush that would indicate good soil for their food. It's going to be elders. It's going to be, for a while, we didn't know what they were called. Now we know that they're red osier dogwood. We also know that young aspen stands attract big flights of these birds for their density. So say about a six or a seven year old aspen clear cut, and even a little younger, can really be ideal for woodcock. If it's sunny and warm like it's been this week, season's open right now, but it's been close to 70 a lot of days, you start hunting them in the shade. So you look for those exact same spots. And then you look for a pine tree. Pines are shade. They're going to be under that. They don't want to be any hotter than I do or the dog does. And so after they've fed in the evening and at night, they go to these areas to rest and roost and recover. And they're putting on fat for this, this migration south in the fall. Where I'm going to be is I'm going to be in young, thick. If it's horrible walking, we're going there. Ideally, a pointing dog will do most of the work, and then it's a matter of you get to him. But what I'm looking for is a little bit of moisture. Where will there be earthworms? I'm looking for elders, young aspen, those dogwoods. Along the way, they do have some overlapping habitats with the rough grouse, which usually wants a little older aspen. So along the way, we have those two identical kind of habitats trying to merge a lot of the same uh, the same flora involved um, gray dogwood buds are a rough grouse food uh, same with crab apples and things but you're looking at stem dense thick hard for an avian predator to get into and that's where you're going to find these birds they're looking for as much safety as they can get and as much food as they can get that's 
what prey species would do. And these are two iconic prey species. So, so are you fi- are you finding a lone woodcock? Or are you finding a no covey, for lack of a better word, of woodcocks? How does that work? Earlier in the year, we have resident woodcock. They're going to be more single. Maybe not perfectly single, but when you get into them, you're going to have one here and maybe another every, you know, maybe 60 yards later, there's another or 100 yards. Uh, When the flights happen, they're not really called a covey, but you're going to be flying in a group. And they're going to land, they're going to move into habitat that they they see from above at night. They, They mostly migrate at night. So when they land, they're going to go to the spot thinking that there will be food there. And we may very well, in some cases, I've had a dog that didn't know quite that he was a pointer yet, blow up 20 birds in a matter of 50 yards. All around me and in gun range, so this kind of radius around me of 25, 30 yards, he came through there and over the course of 50 or 60 yards of me moving, he just ran over birds everywhere. And essentially what that was, was a large flight had moved in and they were resting. They were trying to feed and recover their strength and their energy reserves for the next jump, jump down state. Um, when you get into those, it can be absolutely magical. Uh, but it really is a, it really is an upland hunt. Like I think I had in my mind, it was this uh, weird combination of a, I think the migratory thing is what made me think this, that I thought it was like this weird combination of a hybrid upland waterfowl hunt, but it's, it's really just an upland hunt with migratory birds. Correct. Um, what you're thinking of more matches the common snipe. Right. A little more watery and you got to use steel and that turns more into an area next to a duck area. Um, and we've had to stop. We, we don't shoot those because we're all carrying lead. (laughs) So, Right. You're, you get, they look very similar. They fly, they fly a little different. And after about the third time you see one, you know exactly what it is. You yell snipe, no one shoots, except for the one guy who's carrying either steel or bismuth that day. And then it always flies away from him to someone else. Right. And he's just sitting there cursing that you bought these shells and you can't even use them yet. But, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> That, that's how we would woodcock hunt. It is an upland hunt. You, what you're used to in Kansas, though, of nice leisurely stroll through grass, you're going to go through what was a clear cut five years ago, and there's going to be slash piles that are slowly still degrading back into the soil. It's going to be a mess. None of these trees are going to be big and are going to be far enough apart for you to walk without turning sideways, getting tangled up. When that bird does finally flush in front of you, your gun barrel is going to hang up on at least one branch. And so then you're going to poke and shoot as best you can. And if it's early in the season, the leaves are on, you've got about a 10 foot shot window before that bird disappears from view. Later on in the year, it gets easier with the flights. The leaves are falling like they are right now. And the shooting does get easier. Um, The walking does not get any easier. Um, that's that's the beauty of those birds, and I love that bird in particular because I love those piney edges next to a lowland where I see the red dogwoods, where I see the balsams further north in Michigan, where I see the, the popple stands and the pockets and these transitions between those different 
those those different growing areas and there's just something magical about that in the fall there's something in the smell there's something in the way you know you watch the dog work and if the dog is doing great you have that added to it all but you've got these golden leaves from the aspen that you get a few hangers on we have sugar maples turning red all these things happen at the same time that's very cool that's it is you've enticed me I'm going to show up in Grand Rapids someday and tell you that I want to go woodcock hunting. I'm going to add it to a bucket list. I'm going to add it to a bucket list that I have. You, you, you Joe, send, I really send I, me a message, man. I'll take you. <laughs> I really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I knew it would be. It was kind of an aha moment for me as I scrolled. Uh, you know, your as I scrolled your Facebook and then ended up on the Upland or the Michigan Upland Experience. Um, I just it was kind of instantaneous. I knew you were somebody that I wanted to talk to, so I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for thanks for being a, a somewhat listener. I don't know how much you listen, but thanks for listening to our stuff and and uh, thanks for spreading the good word about hunting out there. You're definitely doing that. Oh well, thank you. Can I can I leave you with one one thing? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Whatever you'd like. I made a note on here. There are four priority words that we stress. And anyone that's an average, I'll use average conservationist. There's four things. There's your heritage. There's the habitat. Whether you want to be or not, you're an advocate. And you are an educator. All four of those things we do on our page as best we can with as quality a post as we can do. And whether or not you want to believe it or admit it, if you're a hunter, I won't just lecture you, Cody, you know better. Every poor picture, you're an educator. Every proper picture, you're an advocate. Every time you do anything, we're a social media page. Everything we do will fill something in those four terms. And we do everything we can to do all four of those as best we can. I think you're, I, I think you're doing it well. I would encourage anyone to listen to this, regardless of whether you're even uh, anywhere near Michigan or even if you're not an Upland hunter. I think that the the Michigan Upland Experience Facebook page is a really good example of hunters representing hunting well. Um, I think it's worth to go check out and scroll if for nothing else than to check out Joe's blaze orange hat. I mean, that if that's what gets you there, then continue to scroll. Really good content, um, quality, quality, um, good representation of hunting. And uh, thanks, man. Thanks for being my first guest after after Dr. Kroger let me uh, take a shot at a podcast by myself. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> cool, man. Thanks again. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.